Employment rates are lower for ethnic minorities than for white people. Highlighting disparities between ethnic groups. As part of the race audit being published by the government. A group of people from minority backgrounds have, however, written to The Times today to say that a crude... Welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, assistant editor at Spiked. And that was a clip from the Today programme on BBC Radio 4 this week, after the government's race audit was published. The audit was promised by Prime Minister Theresa May back in 2016, and it has been celebrated by many. Finally, something is being done about racist Britain, some are saying. Others are claiming that the data produced is nothing new. We've always known that there is discrimination, they say. But not everyone agrees with the way in which the audit has been produced. One of the signatories of the letter to the Times was Minira Mirza, former Deputy Mayor of London for Culture and Education and now an advisor on the arts and philanthropy. Manira has caught some flack over the past week for speaking out against the audit, but she remains adamant that fear-mongering about racism in Britain is not the way to win equality. To find out more about this, I met Manira in central London to get to grips with why she and others are speaking out against the government's audit. Well, Manira, let's start by just first of all talking about what was in the audit. What did it say and why do you disagree with it? The government uh, announced last year that it was going to do a report about uh, racial disparities in the UK, looking at different outcomes for ethnic groups in areas like education, employment, health. They published this report uh, this week and it does show a range of uh, different Uh, indicators. It's a huge amount of data. Most of it, to be honest, was already out in the public domain. But they've uh, claimed that this is an unprecedented step for any government in the world to take. And they're clearly very proud of the fact they're doing this. And they feel uh, that they are tackling what Theresa May originally called burning injustices in society. The concern that I've had, and the reason that I wrote a letter along with nine other people from ethnic minority backgrounds, is that the way that the report has been framed is very much in terms of the negative and really assuming that because there are differences in outcome between ethnic groups, that that must be down to discrimination and unfair treatment, which is what the government has uh, described it as. And we just feel that that's far too simplistic. There are lots of different reasons why different groups uh, do well and better than others. And uh, it doesn't make sense to have a kind of zero-sum game where some groups doing better than others is immediately a bad thing. We have to be more rigorous with the evidence that we see. And I think that the government has preemptively uh, assumed that there is a, a great deal of racism and discrimination within the system. Uh, and I just don't think the evidence is there to demonstrate that. I mean, you have suggested that this could be just a sort of ploy by the Tories to try and make good on something, to be seen to be doing something when they've had quite a disastrous run of it recently. I mean, I have I have said that. I think that there's probably some uh, politicking going on. I do think there are probably lots of people, though, involved who have good intentions and who think that this is a way to listen to BME communities in the country. And uh, no doubt they've met lobby groups uh, who will be saying this to them. But I think that unfortunately, the position that lots of these lobby groups take, again, assuming good faith, because I have to, um, is uh, well-intentioned, but it's not necessarily the most accurate or truthful account of what's going on. I think it's very difficult once you're uh, seeing the world through the prism of race and racism, you begin then to interpret every negative experience, everything, all the statistics through that prism. It becomes an explanatory factor 
when in fact it's just the correlation of a number of different variables. And the thing about statistics is you can start to see patterns uh, and start to make links between them when the evidence actually doesn't prove anything, but it's inferred. And, and that's when social science can become quite dangerous and it can become advocacy and, and not really about what's going on. I mean, tensions are always high about this, but I'm right in saying that you aren't arguing that racism doesn't exist, but that it isn't institutional and it isn't widespread as this race audit makes out to be. I think it's it's perfectly fine to say and not contradictory to say that there is racism. People have prejudices. Uh, people experience racism, the extent of which um, is declining, I believe, based on the attitudes and the survey reports that, that, that we see year on year. Um, very, very, very few people um, in the population will admit to being very prejudiced. And even then, it's not clear that they act on those prejudices or uh, they have the ability to influence decisions. But we, we have to assume that there, there will be discrimination in, in society. What we're arguing is that there's no reason to think that the entire system, that all the public services are uh, uh, riven by racism and that, in fact, that these dis- differences are caused by that. You know, I think, you know, the example that I've used in, in articles that I've written on this, where we see that there are, you know, far more men than women in prison. Nobody talks about gender injustice. There are far more men stopped and searched on our streets. Nobody gets upset about gender injustice there. There are, you know, reasons why we pick out certain differences and focus on them. The issue of racism, it's very difficult, and very sensitive, and lots of people would rather avoid talking about it uh, or avoid having a challenging argument about what the statistics mean. But you can't make intelligent policy in this area unless you're prepared to be honest and consider different explanations. Do you think there's a great irony here that as society becomes less racist, as we become more integrated, more comfortable with race, it's less of a problem for a lot of people, some book becoming more obsessed with racism, even where it doesn't exist, kind of looking for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a just a coincidence that, that those two trends converge or there's a greater, deeper explanation uh, for them to happen at the same time. You're right, the prejudice is declining. Certainly, the acceptance of prejudice, the idea that it's fine, has certainly gone down. I mean, it's completely socially unacceptable to admit to having a racial prejudice. And, you know, on some level, that's a very good thing, I think. You know, we, we should have certain moral norms and so on. Um, I think it's probably sometimes oversensitivities about race as well. And I say this as someone who's from an ethnic background, and uh, I think that you can you know, have quite a chilling effect on public discussion and humour and these sorts of things that, you know, that I think can happen. But the, the fact that people are so sensitised to race and willing to see or experiences through that prism, assume that when bad things happen, that must be the causal factor. And it's based purely in an entirely subjective thing. Um, in, in some cases, you know, there's no clear evidence. And of course, it's hard to prove something like that. But I think we need to have more to go on than just intuition or a uh, feeling. And is there an argument, do you think, in the fact that racism has kind of become a code word for something else, for the idea that people are bad? You know, the hunt for racism now is a kind of form of misanthropy. It's like people are obviously racist. They're obviously bad. It's kind of innate in all of us. And unless we check it, uh, then it's going to come out. It might be a peculiarity of the British psyche or just the contemporary moment that people find it very easy to believe the worst of others. And I think that's particularly the case of the white British. It's very easy to assume the white British are terribly racist. And actually, in surveys that, that I've seen, the research shows that ethnic minorities are the highest 
most likely to have prejudices against other ethnic groups. Um, I mean, far higher, and probably because they don't feel the same inhibition about admitting it. In other countries around the world, that sense of racial prejudice is, um, you know, actually a more common thing. I think there is a, um, a particular cultural phenomenon at the moment in Britain where people want to assume that the white British have a problem with race when, you know, it's probably exaggerated, almost certainly exaggerated in, in parts of the media. You know, that, that's a whole, that's a whole area to explore. Why is it that we assume the worst of ourselves? Um, when, and in fact, this country has come a long way. It's, you know, I think generally pretty fair. You know, if you do have issues or you have a, you know, problem if you experience discrimination, there are laws designed to protect you. It's, uh, it's quite a negative portrayal of your own country. And the thing that's surprising that the government would try and perpetuate that after seven years in, in government, to say that you know things are so terrible when you know it really is a case of glass half full. And now one of the worrying things about this audit and the reaction to it is that there's kind of calls for greater things to happen, for more systems to be put in place, new laws, new policies potentially. Does that make you nervous? I mean, I think the system that we've had for the last twenty years, and it's certainly flawed in, in, in a number of ways, but it's quite interesting that the gaps are closing between ethnic groups in so many areas, and ethnic groups are starting to exceed the average. So I would say there's quite a lot that's working really well. And if I had been involved in writing the report, I would have emphasised that and said, you know, actually in 10 years' time, you'll like to see the talent pipeline growing in, in certain areas. And there are reasons why you know, some ethnic groups do not go and work in some areas and you might want to you know, try and encourage them to. But, you know, it's not, it's not a case of the government fixes everything and does it overnight with one policy. There's a sort of un- lack of realism about what the government can and can't do. And that's why I think the sort of rush to policy making is the worst kind of tendency in government, the-, the need to be seen to be doing something. And in doing so, just creating a very highly racialized structure. The you know, people in- yesterday were talking about quotas and targets and enforcement of uh, recruitment rules for employers, things which are, I think, uh, probably massively counterproductive, probably you know not going to really deal with some underlying issues and create resentment. Um, so I, yeah, I do worry that policy is kind of made in reaction without a huge amount of uh, uh, clever thinking. Now, what about the fact that the striking thing today is that, as we've said, as race becomes less and less of a problem, and which is a great thing, people tend to more and more define themselves by their race. It's kind of central to their identity, whether the colour of their skin or their gender. It's identity politics has become far more central to people's understanding of who they are. Why do you think we're putting ourselves back into boxes? It probably is more. That tendency was always there to some extent, very early on when immigration began in Britain, um, for quite defensive reasons, not feeling part of society. And I think for an older generation of activists, it's very hard to let go of that. So I can, in some ways, I sympathise and understand their, their instinct, which is to identify with a group. The thing I can't understand is how many younger people still feel that instinct and feel it more strongly. They're more angry. I think more angry at white people, which... Um, is, you know, I've seen this where you see younger activists uh, screaming at their, the older generation of activists for being too complacent. And, you know, that's happened with the Black Lives Matters campaign in America. It's actually, there's been a bit of intergenerational strife there. I think it's become a more toxic attitude, a toxic environment in, in some ways. There's, there's a great sense of dissatisfaction with the system and, and a, a feeling that it can't reform and it can't do what we want. 
which is ironic because in so many ways the system is delivering, you know, it, you know, it's just true to say that employment results have got better for most ethnic groups and the ones for the ones that haven't, there are some other structural issues, frankly, that affect white working class people as much. The tone of identity politics today is more strident and more angry. It's very hard to convince people with simply evidence and, and say, well, look at the data because often people don't want to hear that. And I'm not sure politically what is the right way to, to win that argument. I think you can only just keep trying to make the arguments reasonably. One of the reasons why I and my co-signatories to the letter wanted to write is because we are people from ethnic backgrounds and we wanted to show that it's possible to have an alternative point of view on these matters, that the kind of official anti-racism is not the only way of thinking. And what's interesting about the response of that younger generation that you just talked about is that they are often the ones that are arguing for more state intervention, for more policy, for the government to do something. They're quite vocal in that, um, which kind of ignores the history, I think, that actually it wasn't necessarily uh, government policy and lawmaking that changed uh, racist beliefs that fought racism in the past. It was kind of people power, people out on the streets, the anti-racist movement in Britain, uh, which fueled the idea that society needed to change. It wasn't a kind of top-down thing. Do you think that we've kind of forgotten that history? Uh, I'm not sure if that history is actually quite accurate. I think there there was quite an important role when government got involved. I think that the um, you know there's a long history of, in the way in which ethnic groups integrated into the labour market. And um, it was a very interesting book written recently by James Hartfield called The Equalities Revolution, or The Equal Opportunities Revolution, sorry, which looks at the, the way in which the labour market changed with the, the declining power of the trade unions, basically opening up to other sources of labour, ethnic groups, women. That had quite a fundamental impact on the integration of those groups. It meant that they were working and able to live independent lives, able to earn income, uh, basically able to integrate into society. And the equal opportunities revolution, the, the, the growth of workplace equalities, you know, for all the flaws that it has, has also done a fairly effective job in protecting their position in the workplace and, and breaking down the, the dominance of the unions. Obviously, there's been deindustrialization as well, so the growth of the service sector, which can accommodate um, different kinds of people, that's made a huge difference. So I, I, whilst I, I recognise, I think you're right, that the kind of grassroots movements were important and triggered that change, I think it was a combination of both. So I think, you know, there is room for policy, there is room for, you know, legal change. I just think, unfortunately, we're in a situation where the kinds of changes being proposed are wrong. Now, we have to talk about Brexit because part of the response to the race audit uh, has been a lot of people saying, well, what do you expect in Brexit Britain? Brexit Britain is racist and this is the result. Uh, that has certainly been something that you will be familiar with because it's been a conversation that's been had about Brexit for a long time and a prejudice that many, I think, still hold in the political class. How do we deal with that? There's clearly a sort of uh, accusatory tone in a lot of the discussion about Brexit and the people who voted Leave. Um, I think there was probably a variety of opinion amongst Leave voters. I think some of them probably were racist and some of them weren't. The majority of them weren't probably based on everything we know about the British population. The majority of people, the vast majority of people are not, are not racist. So we can only assume that, that Leave voters would reflect um, that to some extent. Um, and I wouldn't want to paint a rosy tinted picture of British society, I don't think we should have false optimism. 
but I just think a realistic assessment is needed. And, and one one thing I found in in this week and and doing some media around the the letter to the Times is um, for the first time I was called a race denier. And, you know, people it's become almost like climate change denial or Holocaust denial. You know, race denier if you start to question some of the official wisdom about race. And I I think that just has such a chilling effect on debate. Well, finally, the Manira, I mean, there is positive news. Britain is not a horrendously racist place, simply because we've had a history of anti-racism, because people have fought against injustice and people have fought for equality. Then there have been great gains of past battles that people are now enjoying today. And while there is still an issue in some places with racism, and as you say, there are still instances of racism which should be talked about and should be battled, what do you think needs to be done now? What might a positive equality movement look like? And would it need to challenge the kind of official anti-racism at this point? When it comes to you know people's prejudices, I think you know we already have a culture which is fairly hostile to prejudice, and I'm not really sure what government can do in in that area any any more than than are already happening. I'm not in favour of more laws curbing our speech or our freedom of expression. I think they're they tend to actually provoke more resentment between groups. You see how angry people get on Twitter when they feel that they're not going to be um, held to account for their views. They, you know, they really do let rip. And I think that there is a degree of resentment that bubbles up when people feel they're con- being controlled in what they can think. I think that you know the broader culture is in the right place. Uh, I, I'm sure there are examples of um, discrimination in in certain areas, certain parts of the country. Quite possibly, a lot of it to do with particular segregated areas um you know places like the north where i'm from they do have some serious problems they're economically very deprived but you need a whole strategy to revive those areas you need a completely new economic plan for, for those communities i think those are the things that government should really focus on maybe a bit less trying to shape our minds a bit more trying to shape the structures of society in some way You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. To get your daily dose of Spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, and if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.